The Gospel lesson for this second Sunday of Lent comes from the Gospel according to John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, uh, and you can find it on page 751 of the Pew Bible. And please stand as you are able for the reading of God's Word. From John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, we read in Jesus' name. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. God works in mysterious ways. To be honest with you, I don't know if I've ever really liked that phrase very much. It usually is used to attribute some kind of uh, coincidence or just surprising twists of events to God when we may not really know if God was actually behind them or not. But the saying does actually ring true when we look at the ways we see God working in Scripture. God does work in mysterious ways. Even when he reveals to us what he does, it's still mysterious. We can even go so far as to say that God works in strange ways. He does some strange things, and he has some legitimately weird methods. Think of some of the things he's done. He created man out of dust from the ground. He made woman out of a man's rib. That's kind of weird. He made a nation out of an old man and his old barren wife. He told Israel to defeat a city by marching around it blowing trumpets. That's kind of weird. When a Gentile general had leprosy, the prophet Elisha told him to bathe in the Jordan River seven times, and 
that general, he wasn't going to do it until his servants helped him realize that the only reason he despised this method was that it was just too simple. And perhaps the, the strangest one, uh, from the Old Testament at least, was when Israelites were dying from snake bite. So God told Moses to make a graven image of a serpent and put it on a pole for the people to look at. Kind of weird. And then in this gospel lesson, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he cannot enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. That is, be baptized. And all of these strange methods, they really culminate in the strangest of them all. God saving the world through the death of a cursed criminal. It's curious why God would use such strange methods. In the case of the cursed criminal, we know that it was the only way to save the world. But with all the other strange methods, it's kind of mysterious. My guess, and I think this is right, but you can tell me if you have a better idea. My guess is that it makes everything depend on faith. When the Israelites were dying of snakebite, if Moses had given them some water to drink, they could say, well, maybe it was just a coincidence. Maybe there was some kind of healing medicine in the water. But when he says, hey, look at this bronze serpent, then there's no doubt that everything must depend on the promise of God. And the same thing is true for Abraham and Sarah having a child in their old age. If they had had Isaac when they were in their 30s, well, that wouldn't be so weird. But when he's 100 and she's 90, well, that's kind of strange, and it must depend on the promise of God. And the same thing is true for Naaman the Syrian being cleansed of his leprosy in the dirty Jordan River and the Israelites marching around Jericho with trumpets to knock the walls down. And the same thing is true with you and me in our baptisms. It takes away our boasting that's what it does. The only thing we have left to trust in is the promise of God. Now Nicodemus, he came to Jesus at night. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, yes, one of those dreaded Pharisees. Uh, they weren't all bad. It just turns out that the bad ones were the noisiest, and they prevailed in the end to crucify Jesus. But Nicodemus, he was one of the nice ones, and he admitted what the others would not. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Now, that's true, although Nicodemus hasn't quite understood everything about Jesus because he is more than simply a teacher. But he starts to understand something. Recently, Jesus had made quite a stir in Jerusalem at the Passover. He uh, went into the temple and he flipped over the tables. He drove out the money changers and the merchants. And then he also performed signs that caused many of the people to believe in him. And so Nicodemus admits that even the Pharisees know that he is a teacher come from God. And then Jesus says something to Nicodemus that doesn't quite seem to follow. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or perhaps a better translation might be, unless one is born from above, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this doesn't 
at first seem to follow from what Nicodemus said in his introduction, but it really does. Jesus isn't talking about the kingdom of God simply as our future hope of going to heaven after we die. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God as a present reality. The reason the Pharisees cannot see the kingdom of God in Jesus is that they have not been born from above. That is, they haven't been baptized. Now, the Pharisees, they were familiar with John the Baptist and his ministry. John was quite famous in these parts. Many of the Pharisees even went out to John's baptism. But John told them off. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so they didn't receive his baptism. And later in Jesus' ministry, when many of the people believed in Jesus, while the Pharisees rejected him, uh, Luke, in his gospel, he attributes it to the fact that the Pharisees had not been baptized. The people had, and so they believed in Jesus, but the Pharisees hadn't, and so they rejected him. And so the Pharisees, they they, they failed to recognize the kingdom of God in Jesus because they have not been born from above. They weren't baptized. Now, at this point, after Jesus says, you must be born from above, Nicodemus is utterly confused because he doesn't recognize yet that Jesus is talking about baptism. And so Jesus, uh, uh, so Nicodemus, he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? And Jesus he makes clear that he's talking about baptism. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, you may be aware that we have many Christian friends who deny that baptism really does anything. They see it as a symbol and an act of our obedience instead of something that God does to work repentance and forgiveness of sins and to save us, despite many passages that say those exact things. And so they also deny here that Jesus is talking about baptism when he speaks of water and the Spirit, because if baptism is water and the Spirit, then baptism would have the power of the new birth. And it's important for us as Lutherans to understand what we believe and why we believe it. So I'm, I'm going to outline, uh, as briefly as I know how, uh, what the debate is. And I'd love to give you a big, long lecture about this whole thing, but you might not enjoy that as much as I would, and I would probably lose you, so I'll be as simple as I know how. There are two basic tactics, two popular tactics that are used to deny that Jesus is talking about baptism here. And I mentioned them to you because you might run into them. The first is to say that water refers to our first physical birth, while spirit alone, that is, without water, refers to our second spiritual birth. And so this method separates water and spirit and takes uh, water out of the new birth, thereby taking baptism out of it and denying the power. The problem is that this actually just ignores the rules of grammar. Uh, The way it's written in Greek completely forbids this move, and it actually necessitates the water and spirit be read together as one thing. Uh, and so these are the means that are joined together to cause the new birth. And this makes it really hard to deny that Jesus is talking about baptism here. 
And so the second tactic, and this is the one that's become more popular with scholars because the first one was debunked, the second tactic is to say that Jesus can't be talking about baptism because he hasn't instituted baptism yet. However, if you read before and after this in the Gospel of John, you see that this completely ignores the ministry of John the Baptist, who, remember, was quite famous, especially in these parts around Jerusalem, and the Pharisees were very familiar with him. Now, John, in his ministry, he baptized people, and he especially told them to believe in the one coming after him. That is Jesus. And he spoke of Jesus as the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so in John 3, when Jesus talks about water and the Spirit, he's not talking about anything new here. This teaching actually comes straight out of the teaching of John the Baptist. And so it would have been quite natural for Nicodemus to understand that Jesus is talking about baptism. And so we have many Christian friends who are also committed to the truthfulness of the scriptures, and uh, in many other areas we agree with them and can even learn things from them. But when it comes to the doctrine of baptism, the scriptures, quite frankly, they're just too clear, and we cannot deny its power. And so it's really not for a lack of scriptural clarity that baptism gets denied. It's just too easy. It's like Naaman the Syrian dipping in the Jordan River seven times in order to be cured of leprosy. He despised it for its simplicity. Or a snake on a pole? Is that really going to cure snake bite? Well, if God says it will, then yes, it will. The biblical doctrine of baptism is an attack on our pride. It means the new birth didn't come from anything that I did. It means I'm not a Christian because of my own ability to see Jesus as the Son of God while others remained blind to it or just too sinful to see it. We're often tempted to trust in our own faith rather than trusting in Jesus. And that might sound kind of strange, but faith in faith is no faith at all. Baptism takes our faith out of our own hands and places it in the hands of the Holy Spirit so that we can no longer trust in our own believing, but only in the promise of God. God certainly works in mysterious and strange ways. But this is good, ultimately because it teaches us to trust the promise of God. And so then Jesus goes on to uh, speak with Nicodemus about the serpent in the wilderness, which was extremely strange. Uh, the incident with the snakes is recorded in Numbers chapter 21. And this occurs toward the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, after the Israelites escaped from Egypt, and before God brought them into their new land. The people became impatient and grumbled against the Lord. So God sent a plague of fiery serpents among them. The snakes bit them, and many of them died. And so they confessed their sins, and they prayed for the Lord to remove the snakes. But God didn't actually remove the snakes. God did something better. He provided a cure. And in this way, God saved not only those who would be bitten after that point, but those who had been bitten already but hadn't died yet. And so he saves more people 
by sending a cure. The strange thing is what the cure is. God commanded Moses to make an image of a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who looked at it lived. Now, this is strange in a number of ways, and I think it's pretty obvious to see that this is strange. First, it's just not logical. Snakebite needs medicine, not a statue to look at. And so if your doctor tells you to do this, find a new one and quickly before the poison kicks in. Second, this looks like a violation of the first commandment, which forbids graven images and especially the worship of graven images. And if they're looking to this statue for salvation, that's worship. Third, and and this is the really weird part, what is the serpent an image of? The devil, right? This goes back to the Garden of Eden. The serpent is the image of the devil. And so it looks like the Israelites are worshiping the devil. And God told them to do it. Now, it's not really devil worship, because the image of the snake on a pole is really an image of Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus explains to Nicodemus. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is talking about the cross, where he will be lifted up from the earth, not in an outwardly beautiful form, but in the form of a cursed criminal. Paul says in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The bronze serpent is not an image of the devil but it is a perfect image of our salvation because it is really a picture of Jesus who became a curse for us and was lifted up on a pole, that is, the cross, so that we might look to him and be saved. The bronze serpent is all about the cross. And so is baptism, to go back to that. Baptism is no hocus-pocus, It joins us to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. That's how it saves. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And if we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There is no salvation apart from Christ's cross and resurrection. And that is exactly why God has given us baptism, in order to join us to Jesus' death and resurrection, so that all the benefits of his sacrifice might come to us. God certainly works in some strange ways, doesn't he? Sometimes it might confuse us. I hope that more than anything, it causes us to marvel at his wonderful love. Because every strange thing he does points us to the strangest of all, a cursed criminal dying on a cross. And that cursed criminal is the Son of God, bearing our curse and our crimes. This 
is how God loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.